0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll get an update on the Tamiflu saga.
1: Through Freedom of Information request to the European Medicines Agency, they got about 20,000 pages of regulatory reports, but they didn't get the entire trial programme.
0: But before that, Mabel Chew finds out about novel antidepressants.
2: I have with me in the studio Associate Professor Simon Hatcher, a psychiatrist from the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Simon, welcome to this BMJ podcast.
3: Thanks We're here
2: to discuss your therapeutics paper which is on the newer antidepressants used in the treatment of depression. To start with, would you like to tell us what you mean by the newer antidepressants?
3: Um, yeah, well, when I was at medical school, which was about 25, 30 years ago, there were really only two types. There the tricyclics and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. But since then, there's been a flurry of new antidepressants produced. There's been the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors of which Prozac is the poster child. And then following those, uh, a number of other types of new antidepressants, new types of uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And that's really what the focus of the article is about. There
2: is some evidence to suggest that antidepressants these days are being overused in some patients. However, they can be very effective in the right place. Would you like to comment on what the indications are for using antidepressants?
3: Yeah, and antidepressants. Uh, are mainly used for treating depression but it, their title is a bit of a misnomer because they're often frequently used in pain clinics, um, especially the tricyclics, NortricClean especially, for treating chronic pain uh, as is amitriptyline. They can often be used in anxiety to treat some of the symptoms associated with anxiety but mainly they're are used for treating depression and there's some evidence that they are overused. We, we quote one American study which found that a quarter of people who were prescribed antidepressants didn't actually have a history of depression and it's hard to believe that that is entirely made up of uh, pain patients and people with anxiety and other disorders.
2: Are these antidepressants, the newer antidepressants, any more effective than the older group?
3: Well, it's a bit like the atypical antipsychotic story really, um, probably not more effective. Where they differ is in their range of side effects, their ease of dosing, and issue of um, lethality and overdose. So, um, if you're taking one of the newer antidepressants from the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for instance, it's usually just once only dosing, whereas with the older tricyclics, you used to have to monitor people gradually increasing their dose. Side effects are different. There's certainly a concern about tricyclics and heart disease. Many of the anticholinergic effects are Difficult for people to tolerate with the older tricyclics, and it does seem that the SSRIs are somewhat better tolerated. And then there's the issue around um, lethality in overdoses. Um, The neuroantidepressants tend to be far less lethal in overdose than the older tricyclics and the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So those are really the considerations around the the, the choice of prescribing rather than uh, necessarily effectiveness.
2: And are any of the newer antidepressants more effective than others?
3: Um, The jury is out but it looks as though it's just coming through the door really um, in that there has been some debate about whether um, sertraline or um, uh, one of the um, variants of citalopram is better than some of the other SSRIs. The NICE guidelines suggest that they're all pretty much the same. Um, There's just been a very recent meta-analysis done in the Annals of Internal Medicine looking at over 200 studies which found that there probably wasn't much difference between the different uh, types of uh, newer antidepressants. So I think the answer is that they're probably pretty much the same.
2: So, what are the main uh, concerns or, or cautions there are with prescribing these drugs?
3: One of the common concerns is the risk of precipitating a serotonin syndrome, which is uh, particularly common but often overlooked with uh, tramadol uh, or oxycodone. People are often concerned about the risk in pregnancy because being depressed and pregnant is a common problem which presents to doctors. And if people opt for the pharmacological management, the issue is always well, do um, the SSRIs or any of the neuroantidepressants cause problems? The evidence is they probably don't, but most of the studies aren't that great. Um, We we quoted a study in the article of um, 12 papers which found very little effect on the outcome in infants. Similarly with breastfeeding, prescribing antidepressants isn't uh, entirely contraindicated a nice state that semiphramine or tryptoline is certainly present in uh, lower amounts uh, than probably other uh, antidepressants.
2: Suicidal ideation is one possible side effect that has been quite publicized. Would you like to comment on that?
3: Yeah. Um... It's something which clearly concerns people who take medication and people who who, who prescribe it. The difficulty is that it's a rare but uh, catastrophic event. So it's one of these things which uh, randomised controlled trials can't tell you much about. You have to rely on observational studies to tell you something about the risk with uh, taking SSRIs or any of your antidepressants and they of course have their own um, uh, biases which is why the jury has been a bit out on this issue. There does seem to be an increased risk in younger people under the age of 25. The way to manage that risk is with monitoring people relatively often and not being afraid to ask the questions about suicide and um, I nice recommend that to see certainly young people who are suicidal within a week of first prescribing SSRIs uh, or any of the new antidepressants uh, and to ask about suicide.
2: That's very useful advice and certainly with prescribing these antidepressants. Uh, One of the most important things I know as a GP is to discuss the patient's fears and expectations, not only about the condition, but the drugs that um, they might be taking. What are your tips for what we should be discussing with the patient before starting these drugs?
3: Um, uh, Well, first of all, making sure they actually are depressed. It's worthwhile getting some measure of the severity of the depression by using a rating scale of some sort. We've mentioned the patient health questionnaire, um, hospital anxiety, depression scale. Uh, Any of those will do just to get some handle on the severity of depression. You also need to get some idea of how how impaired people are and to find out what, what they've actually used Previously to try and treat depression. One of the things that seems to be quite clear in developed countries is that when, by the time people come to a doctor and talk about depression, they've often tried other methods of um, sorting out the depression, including alternative therapies. And it's quite important to ask about those because it gives an opportunity to um, engage with the patient around uh, coming up with a treatment plan. It uh, gives an opportunity to think about interactions and to come up with a uh, collaborative plan for the management of the depression.
2: Patients often feel or are concerned because they may sometimes have heard stories of people trying to come off them and having terrible side effects. Would you like to comment on that?
3: Yeah, um, certainly in my experience there's a confusion between Antidepressants and uh, benzodiazepines, people often get the two mixed up uh, and think that uh, being prescribed an antidepressant is uh, a bit like being prescribed a benzodiazepine and you get hooked on them and you can't get off them for the rest of their life. Um, I often say to people that it's a bit like taking an antibiotic and that you take a course and then you stop, except the difference is that the course is longer when you take an antidepressant. There doesn't seem to be much evidence that people get addicted to antidepressants. There can be a discontinuation syndrome with some of the newer antidepressants. Um, and the way to manage that is to withdraw people off the medication uh, relatively slowly without suddenly stopping it. Um, and uh, it's certainly uh, uh, one of the issues is worth mentioning at the uh, start of um, Taking antidepressants, but I think it's important to emphasise that you take a course and then, then often you uh, you plan to stop.
2: The flip side of the coin too is that people often have unrealistic expectations about how fast antidepressants might work and how soon they can come off them. What are the issues you would you would mention there?
3: Well. Um, it's important to know something about people's past history to give some idea of how long somebody should be on an antidepressant for. If it really is their first episode, then most of the guidelines recommend around nine months to a year for the course of antidepressants. If it's not their first episode and it's a recurrent episode, and it seems that most cases of depression are... It's uh, worthwhile having a discussion about longer course antidepressants and possibly cognitive behavior therapy if it's available to help manage the risk of relapse because there is some evidence that um, uh, cognitive behavior therapy is quite good at preventing relapse. The other consideration at the end of the scale from stopping medication is, is how to start it. It's worthwhile talking about the fact that that antidepressants can take some time to work, a week or two, although this is quite variable between different people. Um, Some people will swear blind that they notice a difference in 24 to 48 hours. Uh, For other people it may take uh, a week or two to start showing some signs of improvement. I often tell people that antidepressants work the wrong way around and the time when you're most likely to get some side effects is when you first start taking them. Uh, But these will gradually go away and then the benefits will kick in which again emphasizes the importance of monitoring uh, people especially when they are first started on antidepressants.
2: What about the role of non-drug therapies in depression?
3: Um, The the focus of the article is on antidepressants because of necessity, it's an article on on therapeutics, on uh, pharmacological therapeutics. However, I don't want to give the impression that the predominant method for treating depression is with tablets as in fact most people who present to doctors with depression will have mild to moderate depression and NICE recommend certainly for uh, mild to moderate depression that non-drug therapies are as equally effective as medication. It's important if it is possible in terms of access to therapies and resources to give people the option of uh, accessing non-drug therapies like cognitive behavior therapy, like computerized therapies, uh, like problem-solving therapy. The advantage of these therapies is that they can teach people a skill uh, which they could go away and potentially use as a way of preventing relapse. I don't want the article to necessarily Overemphasize the role of, uh, of uh, pharmacological interventions in depression. They certainly has a role uh, in the more severe forms of depression, but the milder to moderate forms, uh, talking therapies, non drug therapies, are equally, if not more important.
2: Simon, thank you. That was a very useful update on the newer antidepressants and how to prescribe them.
0: And that article is now available online on BMJ.com. Now, it's been three years since swine flu emerged in Mexico. At the time, concerns that this could be as devastating as the 1918 flu pandemic had governments rushing around to try and find some mitigation. In step Tamiflu, also Tamavir, manufactured by Roche, which promised to reduce duration and severity of symptoms and also reduce complications. Promises that didn't necessarily stand up to the evidence. The Cochrane Collaboration and the BMJ looked into the evidence for these drugs and... Deborah Cohen, who joins me now, led on that investigation from the BMJ side. So, Deborah, what went on at that point? Um, What was wrong with the data?
1: So, this story really starts back in 2009 when a Japanese paediatrician posted a comment up to the Cochrane collaboration saying that one of the reviews that they had relied on in their meta-analysis was, A, it was Roche-funded and B, that eight of the ten trials included in the review were unpublished. And he queried whether that was just to write to assume the conclusions of the review and not actually assess those trials independently themselves. So what then happened was a chase for the data. The Cochrane Collaboration contacted the lead authors of those trials included in the review to see if they could um, provide the data, and they couldn't. Um, and they also asked the drug company Roche for the for the trials too, and they refused to provide them with the data that they required.
0: So, I mean, this led to a big splash at the time. Um... There was a big expose in the BMJ, Cochrane were writing about this. Um, so what happened at that point?
1: The investigation yielded some quite interesting findings. So we found out that some of the papers were ghostwritten. Rosh admitted to that. We found out that the largest ever trial conducted, treatment trial of um, Tamiflu conducted, was never published. Um, we found that different names were appended to the trial at different points in processes. So what went to the regulators, what went to NICE, what was then published, the names kept changing. So nowhere was entirely clear um, who had taken responsibility for the trial. At the same time, Roche made a promise on the pages of the BMJ that they would provide the full clinical study reports to the Cochrane Collaboration.
0: So we fast forward three years to now, have Cochrane had that data to be able to look at that?
1: Well, Roche released about three thousand two hundred pages of data. Um, and the Cochrane collaboration maintain that wasn't enough for them to do the the full um, report the full review because, for example, the Co- they never released protocols, trial protocols, so they couldn't assess how the trials were done mm. to kind of fully understand how the trial was done. The Cochrane Collaboration, incidentally, do not want to rely on the published literature. There's publication bias, a lot of the studies haven't been published. So, what they actually did was turn to the regulators because Roche maintained that all data was provided to the regulators. And what was interesting was through Freedom of Information request to the European Medicines Agency, they got about 20,000 pages of regulatory reports, but they didn't get the entire trial programme. And that was because the European Medicines Agency never asked for the detailed parts of the trial they only had a certain subset of those clinical reports that the uh, drug company sent in and actually EMA never even asked for it which which was surprising they're still waiting for their freedom of information requests from the FDA but the FDA do publish large swathes of clinical decision making mm. on their website
0: So we know that the the evidence is is shaky, but uh, the evidence that they did manage to get from the regulators, what did they find?
1: So what the evidence shows is essentially that, I think in treatment of healthy adults, is that um, Tamiflu reduces the duration of symptoms by 21 hours, not that it um, reduces secondary complications the FDA actually pointed out in 2000 that there was no microbial proof of reductions in complications, so it's things like bronchitis and pneumonia, otitis media, and that therefore Roche could not make the claim that it reduced secondary complications and actually castigated them for trying to make those claims. Mm. So that's, that stands. The, the other p- bit of information that that that's quite interesting, that's come out. In 2007, WHO, as part of their influenza pandemic plan, said that Tamiflu could reduce transmission. And by looking at the trial evidence, those trials have never been done that demonstrates an interruption of transmission. So that came up. And another interesting point that's come up is the effect on antibodies. What the Cochrane Collaboration hypothesises, actually um, Tamiflu has an effect on antibody production. And that then poses questions for the interaction with vaccines. And actually the FDA themselves noted no trial had been done that looks at the effects of Tamiflu and vaccine.
0: What's going on with this stockpile now of Tamiflu that we have that's worth billions and and sort of continuing programme of buying it for, for future pandemic proofing?
1: I think what If anything, and I suspect, and this is only my my gut feeling, that we will continue to stop Tamiflu. And Tamiflu, as I point out in, in the feature, has now become a mainstay of influenza treatment. When NICE, back in 2000, said it wasn't cost effective to be used by anybody. It should be limited to certain populations. What you'd hope is that if there's any learning points from this is that the way we make decisions, major public health decisions, is flawed. We should have independent analyses of the data. We shouldn't be relying on Roche-funded influenza experts to give their opinions, as we know that happens with the European Medicines Agency, as we've documented with the WHO. They're far too close to the company and there should be an independent assessment of the data done and we kind of have to ask whether this is good public health decision-making. I don't think it is, and let's hope this changes in the future.
0: Well, hopefully we'll be keeping an eye on this, obviously, in the BMJ, um, and we'll be reporting back as and when something like that does occur. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with novel anti-epileptics, and we'll also explain what's causing the huge drop in deaths from acute myocardial infarctions. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.